a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. On August 27, 1973, four hostages and their captors are holed up inside a bank vault in Normum Story Square in Sweden. The hostages, Christine, Elizabeth, Birgitta, and Sven, are standing upright with nooses around their necks, waiting to die. Above them, police have drilled seven holes through a concrete ceiling, and they're about to drop tear gas into the vault. But before they can enact their plan, one of the captors informs police if they drop the tear gas, the hostages will pass out and be strangled by their own weight. Their deaths will be on the police's hands, he says. And for a moment, the police are at a standstill. They believe these men are ruthless. But the hostages don't share the police's feelings. They believe the police are responsible, condemning them to death. If only they'd listen, all of this would be over. It's a story we've all heard of, even if we don't know it. Because it gave birth to a world-famous psychological phenomenon. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. Just four days earlier, at around 10 o'clock in the morning on August 23rd, 1973, Christine, Elizabeth, and Birgitta are just going about their day. They're working at the Credit Banken in Normum Story Square in Stockholm. And it's a typical Thursday morning. The bank that they're working in, the lobby is really large. It looks elegant. There are white marble columns and a grand mahogany staircase. And at one end, you'll see a long teller counter. 31-year-old Birgitta has been at the bank for 10 years, and she's really just settled into her routine at this point. Today, she's verifying a check at her desk, thinking about going to buy her children some clothes on her lunch break. We love a useful lunch trip, you know? We really do. We have 21-year-old Elizabeth, and she is working as a cashier. And she's dealing with, of course, the line of customers coming in on a busy morning asking her to do things for them. And unlike Birgitta, she's not totally satisfied at this job. She's young. You know, working at a bank isn't necessarily her dream job. And she's planning on going to school when the semester starts next month. And she actually wants to become a nurse, according to our podcast, one of the best professions in the whole wide world. I stand by that. Just a few feet from her is 23-year-old Christine. She's pretty much got the same plan, actually, to go to school and to find a different job. She also did not pick banker when she played Monopoly. Christine usually works in the loans department, but right now she's chatting with a cute guy named Boo at the teller's counter. Little do they know, all their plans are about to be put on hold. Suddenly, gunshots go off. Customers scramble in all directions. Some fall to the floor, while others immediately run out the door. There's a lone man standing in the middle of the lobby, pointing a machine gun in the air and shouting with an unmistakable American accent, The party has just begun. Get down on the floor. And then to add to that party, he starts playing rock music from his radio. 
Birgitta immediately dives under a desk and she squeezes herself into this small space underneath her desk and she's hiding, right, from the man with the gun. Elizabeth and Christine drop to the floor as well while Christine's crush, Boo, he's standing there just in a state of shock, right? We know flight, fight, or freeze. Boo freezes. She whispers, get down, but it's too late. The robber immediately spots him. You, he shouts. Tie these two up. And he tosses Boo a knife and a long yellow rope, and he points at Christine and Elizabeth. Boo just does as he's told. The robber, meanwhile, winds his way around the teller counter and forces the others out of their hiding spots. He points at Birgitta and tells Boo to tie her up too, which he does. And the rest of the 40-odd people who were in the bank that morning continue just cowering in place. Christine is terrified. Later, she'll recall thinking, I believed a maniac had come into my life. I believed I was seeing something that could only happen in America. Because, of course, if there's a man with a gun, it can only be an American. Well, that and because this guy is speaking English with an American accent. He's tall, tan, he has brown curly hair and a mustache. And he's hiding his eyes behind a pair of sunglasses. And along with him, he's carrying a canvas suitcase that is full of supplies. Christine and Elizabeth and Birgitta are now this man's chosen hostages. Outside the bank, a silent alarm is flashing bright lights into Normalm Story Square. And police are gathering in the square, but they're completely blind to what's going on inside the lobby. And even in the lobby, nobody really knows what's going on. The robber isn't raiding any cash registers or heading towards the bank vault. He just seems to be waiting for something. When he sees the police force mounting outside, he says, what an effing long time it took for them to get there. Seems like Sky would like to talk to the police. I also think it's worth noting that culturally in Sweden, people hate violence. And I know you must be thinking, of course, who doesn't hate violence? But it's it's beyond just sort of a, an individual understanding of it. It is a cultural thing, right? Like only in the most extreme circumstances could they ever imagine killing someone would be justified. So when a police officer sneaks down the mahogany staircase that's in the lobby, he's holding a gun and he takes aim at the robber from the cover of a marble column. And one of the hostages, Birgitta, sees him, and she yells, don't shoot, which of course immediately alerts the robber to what's happening. And the robber whips around, gun in hand, and demands to know who's there. The officer identifies himself and tells the robber, put down your gun or else I'm going to shoot. But this robber, he's not playing games. He drops to a knee and bang, shoots this officer right through the hand. So the injured officer now has no choice but to retreat. The robber is visibly shaken by this and sweating profusely. I mean, he just shot someone. So much so that his tan seems to be melting off his forehead. And it looks like it's actually not a tan at all. It's actually bronzing powder. It's his Rudolph Giuliani moment. You know, Quinn, thank you so much for using the full name Rudolph, not Rudy. No, no, Rudolph, I really. respect the it's respect his, the sweat. <laughs> respect the sweat. And the robber at this point, after he's wiping the bronzing powder off of his head, he doesn't realize it yet, but the police are actually stationed on the second floor of the bank building and their numbers are growing. More police are coming by the second. A few minutes pass and another cop, Officer Morgan Rylander, descends the mahogany stairs, not even trying to hide himself. The robber is using Elizabeth as a human shield, and he's forced the other hostages to surround him like a wall against anyone who'd try to sneak up on them. The robber insists that he has to speak to a high-ranking officer right away. He has some demands that he'd like to discuss— and Officer Rylander shouts this up the stairs to this growing number of police officers on the second floor. But he remains downstairs. And wouldn't you know it, as luck would have it, Commissioner Sven Torinder had just returned from vacation when he got a call about the robbery. By 10.30 in the morning, he's on the second floor of the bank along with the other officers. 
Commissioner Torrender cautiously walks down the mahogany stairs, which police would later dub the Snock Troppen, aka the Chat Staircase. He wants to hear what this robber has to say. He wants to get a good look at who this guy is and what exactly they're dealing with. The hostages end up translating between the English-speaking robber and the Swedish-speaking commissioner. Now, the robber wants two things. Three million Swedish crowns, which is about $900,000, and a man named Clark Olafsson. And he wants them right now, or else. He motions his machine gun at the hostages to show that he means business. He's going to give them two hours. No, no, actually, you know what? He's feeling generous. He's going to give them two and a half hours to get this done. This doesn't seem unreasonable. Commissioner Torrender leaves the lobby pretty certain that the man they're dealing with is in fact an American. His gun is distinctly Swedish, but Americans fought with these Swedish guns during the Vietnam War, so maybe this guy's a veteran. This is not some terrorist that they're dealing with. They're dealing with someone who can be reasoned with. But who is Clark Olafsson, and what does he have to do with this? 90-some miles away in Norshipping Prison, Clark Olafson is sitting down for his lunch. It's pea soup and pancakes. I'm not one to yuck anyone's yum, but that is disgusting. Quinn, it's prison. Do you really think he got to pick his menu? Well, either way, he doesn't get a finish. A prison guard enters, interrupting this very upsetting meal, and commands Clark to come with her. Clark thinks this must be serious. Guards never interrupt lunchtime unless something's happened, so he worries that a family member has died. But then when he arrives at the warden's office, he's handed a phone, and a voice on the line says, Do you want to come to my party in Stockholm? Clark Olafson is not your average prisoner. He's 26 years old, and he has a reputation for being one of the baddest criminals in all of Sweden. He's a robber, a scammer, a drug dealer. He's also been convicted for attempted murder, and he's escaped prison six times. You name it, he's done it. And if you ask me, I gotta be honest with you here, he's also pretty darn attractive. Barring the murder stuff, that is an absolute deal breaker for me. But to put it into perspective, there's a Netflix show in Sweden about this guy's life, and he's played by Bill Skarsgård. So that's the level of attractive that we're dealing with here. It's nice. Nice stuff. Also, Skarsgård, Sweden's, we didn't talk about major exports. Consider the Skarsgårds another major export. Thank you, Sweden. Sweden. Thank you, Sweden. It's unthinkable that a guy like Clark would be let out of prison so that he could help a bank robber commit a crime. But the police feel like their hands are tied. They don't really have a choice. And they really don't like violence. So here he is. It's an election year also in Sweden. And the Minister of Justice would really rather not have the deaths of several hostages on his hands. The last thing they want to do is let Clark go. But if they want to avoid this potential bloodbath, they need to have him at the ready. So they process him, load him into a car, and they start driving to the bank. Now, back at the bank... Officer Morgan Rylander is sitting in the lobby with the robber and his hostages. He's staying very close just to keep an eye on things and also to try to keep the situation calm and under control. The last thing he wants to happen is for the robber to start shooting again. It's been two hours since he first made his demands known, and there's still no sign of the three million Swedish crowns or Clark Olofsson. And the robber is getting really impatient. So the police decide to send down 1.5 million crowns, which again is half of what he asked for originally, and what they've collected so far. And all of the money that they've sent him are these crisp new bills. And the robber knows what this means. The new bills can be easily traced because they're in sequential order. The robber wants the full amount and for the bills to be old and not in sequential order. The radio, which had been tuned to rock music, is now tuned to the police frequency so that the robber can keep track of everything going on around him. Suddenly, he hears word over the radio that Clark has just entered the bank in handcuffs. He goes into a frenzy, demanding that Clark be brought to him immediately. Upstairs, Clark is with the police officers, but they don't intend on letting Clark join the robber. 
They're just hoping to keep Clark in their back pocket in case the robber gets too demanding. They actually have him at their disposal. And while he's up there, they're hoping to sort of get him to be in their favor. Which is to say, the police are promising to shorten Clark's sentence or even pardon him altogether if he helps them catch the robber. They even inform him that they think that the robber might be this guy called Kai Robert Hansen, who had recently escaped prison and also was Clark's former partner in crime. Suddenly, an urgent report comes over this police radio. The robber is strangling one of his hostages. He's demanding that Clark be brought at once or else he'll kill her. Commissioner Sven Torrender is forced to make a split-second decision, and he asks point-blank, Will you help us? And Clark agrees. Clark walks down the mahogany staircase in his cozy sweater and blue corduroys to find the black-haired robber staring at him with a smile. But Clark doesn't recognize him at all. He says, What's going on here? The robber tells him to come closer and then whispers in his ear, Shaggy, a prison nickname that Clark does recognize. He laughs and shouts, oh, it's you. Months earlier, Clark met the robber in prison. His name is Jan Eric Olson, or Yana, as he called himself. They had always talked about breaking out of prison together. Once, they'd even successfully smuggled in dynamite to make it happen. The reason Clark doesn't immediately recognize him and why police still haven't identified him as Yana wearing a wig is because he's also dyed his mustache and his eyebrows black. He's rubbed bronzing powder all over his face, which we saw sweating away earlier, and it's worked. The police have no idea who this guy is. And in exchange for bringing Clark, Yana tells Officer Morgan Rylander to escort all of the people out of the bank all but his three main hostages, Christine, Elizabeth, and Birgitta. Meanwhile, he sends Clark to do a sweep of the bank. He wants to clear that first floor of all the cops, but Clark's way ahead of him. He shoes away the SWAT team that assembled at the back of the bank, and he goes ahead and erases all the surveillance video they have of the robbery. And he jerry-rigs an alarm at the back door using a glass bottle and some rope. He's even gone ahead and blown up a cash register with some of the explosives in Yana's suitcase and retrieved 90,000 Swedish crowns. It's really becoming apparent to me why Yana wanted Clark around. He's like this bad guy MacGyver, and he just gets things done. Now that the police are cleared away and Clark is helping to keep Yana calm, the hostages feel so much better. Well, as good as you can feel if your hands are still tied and there's a machine gun pointed at you, but they do feel better. Clark then recruits them to siphon as much money present in the bank as possible. They work there, they're the experts at this, and they find that Clark is funny and charming and actually pretty cute. He's so cute that one of the hostages, Elizabeth, mentions that she thinks that he looks like a Swedish Che Guevara. More than anything, he's just putting them all at ease. Things are just so calm, cool, and in control at this point that Yana lets the hostages go to the bathroom by themselves, one at a time. Even though they could have run out the back door, they could have made their escape. But each and every one of them returns. They would later say they returned out of fear for what would happen to the other hostages if they were to flee. Okay, so everyone's able to use the bathroom, and there's some light rock music interludes, but look, I think that calling this a party is overstating the vibe a little bit. This does feel like a frat party I've been to, honestly, though, (laughs) in college, where it was like, you can't leave the basement, weird music is playing, and essentially you are being held hostage and you can barely use the bathroom, honestly, and I called that a party. What's any different here, Quinn? I don't know. But I think what is worth noting, though, is it's not, certainly not a party, but definitely the vibe of fear is thawing a little bit. The introduction of Clark seems to calm everyone down. I mean, right at the beginning, 
that must have been absolutely terrifying. There was gunfire. There were police arguments. And this is like establishing this new power dynamic mm-hmm. that's happening. But again, once Clark is introduced, he seems to calm everybody down, including the police in some ways, which I can imagine as a hostage is a very welcome change. Yeah. And he's the only guest that actually RSVP'd willingly. Outside the bank, TV cameras and snipers are set up in Normal Story Square. Television broadcasts, normally limited to evening hours, instead went on throughout the day. Live broadcasts would go on for days on both of Sweden's channels. That's right. I did it. I said both. They only had two channels at this time. While the camera crews are trying to get footage of the robber, the police snipers are looking for an opening to shoot him down. Yana's been careful to conceal himself behind columns and use the hostages as shields at all times so they can never get a clean shot. And the police upstairs in the second floor of the bank are getting really impatient. They are ready to end this hostage situation, even if it means shooting Yana in the back. So Commissioner Torinder decides it's time to send sharpshooters into the lobby. While Yana and Clark are distracted, they stealthily descend the mahogany staircase pistols held at the ready. They're watching Yana pace with his submachine gun. They need to wait till they have a clear shot. And then suddenly, Yana steps away from a marble pillar out in the open. But just as one of the sharpshooters is about to take their shot, Clark spots him. Yana whips around and starts firing. Glass shatters and the police retreat. The relative calm they'd established is shattered too. Now, Yana knows that he's bound to be killed at any moment if he stays out in the open. So he decides to seek shelter in the bank's vault. It's not ideal, but nobody can sneak up behind him while they're inside it. Yana calls the police to add another demand to his list. He wants a getaway car with enough space for Clark and one hostage. The police say they're working on it. Clark, meanwhile, calls journalists. He tells one writer that Birgitta, Elizabeth, and Christine are amazing. Everyone's getting along great. They even want to go with Yana and Clark in the getaway car. And he's not lying. I think he's as surprised as anyone. After nearly a whole day with Yana and Clark, the hostages have started to trust their captors. And at the same time, they've also started to grow more and more angry at the police. They feel like their lives are now being toyed with. Birgitta has broken down now several times. She's very worried about her kids. So Clark lets her and the others use the phone to call their families and check in. And because of this kindness, they now really come to think of him more as a friend than as an enemy. Clark's role in this robbery or hostage negotiation, you know, it's not really clear what it is. But his role has sort of turned into this peacekeeper, right? He grounds everyone. He sings to Christine, Elizabeth, and Birgitta. He provides them with comfort, and he just is trying to keep everyone calm. But everything does get shaken up again when Clark does a routine search of the bank and he discovers a stowaway. A lanky blonde-haired 20-something kid in a brown jacket has been hiding in the stockroom. At first, Clark jumps back at the sight of him, but then he's like, oh, this guy is obviously not a cop. The man introduces himself as Sven, and Clark casually invites him to join them for a drink, which, you got to admit, that's a pretty cute way of saying, hey there, you're a hostage now. Well, he's been in there for what, like a full day? And at news of this new hostage, Yana starts to panic. He fears that Sven is a threat to them. He actually warns Sven, don't be a hero. But Clark calms Yana down. Sven isn't going to do anything. He's just another hostage to trade, which will help them towards their escape. And the getaway car has at long last arrived. It's a bright blue Ford Mustang parked right in front of the bank. Yana and Clark look at it through the window. And they're like, wow, this seems too easy. Christine and Elizabeth tell them that they want to get in the car with them, but the police refuse to allow any hostages to go. And Yana knows that he's not going to get into that car without a hostage. He knows his best chance of a successful escape is to have a hostage with him to use as a shield. 
Little did he know that the car is also outfitted with a tracking device, and there are helicopters there at the ready to follow that bright blue car wherever it goes. But instead of turning their hostage situation into a high-speed car chase, the robbers and their hostages retreat back into that bank vault, and they settle in for the night. Clark leverages his media connections to get the phone number for the Prime Minister of Sweden, Olaf Palme. The Prime Minister was waiting for a call about something else when he picks up the phone and discovers that the robbers who are plastered all over the news are on the line. Jana demands that the Prime Minister let them leave the bank with their hostages. But the Prime Minister flatly refuses Yana takes drastic action. He grabs Elizabeth by the throat. She whimpers through the telephone as Yana declares that the prime minister has exactly one minute to change his mind, or the young woman will die. He starts the countdown, and with just 15 seconds left, Yana hangs up. He wants the prime minister to think that it's happened, that the young woman's death is on his hands. But really? Yana doesn't have the stomach to do that. Now it's night, and this party becomes a slumber party. So the hostages curl up in various quarters of the bank vault and try to sleep. But Yana stays awake, and he's just chewing on caffeine pills, trying to think of some way out of this mess that he's gotten himself into. The police are admittedly tougher than he expected. You know, he thought that they would take this hostage situation a little more seriously. And he's realizing now he might have no choice but to kill a hostage in order to be taken seriously. But which one? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The next morning, Friday, August 24th, 1973, starts with a bang. Literally. The police still think that Yana is Kai Hansen, the prison escapee and friend of Clark Olaf's son. And so they try to calm down the situation, which means they bring in two men, two additional men, a trusted friend and the teenage brother of Kai. The police are going to deploy them to help them with negotiations. So that morning, the two men yell down the staircase to their presumed friend and brother, But Yana, who is neither their friend nor their brother, is not expecting that. And he finds that the two strangers entering his space is extremely unsettling. He thinks it's some kind of police trick. So he starts shooting at these men. You effing idiots! You have the wrong guy! Kai's 16-year-old brother is yelling at the police afterwards. The real Kai Hansen sees news of this on TV in Hawaii, where he's been hiding out. And he calls the police. He's pissed. He's like, hey, I'm not the robber. And funny enough, that phone call, not a great choice, actually ends up getting him caught. 
But also, can we talk about how the police have deployed a 16-year-old into an armed robbery situation thinking that was a good idea? Hey, they'll try anything once. (laughs) 16-year-old boy, my God. And back at the bank, things are not looking good for Yana and Clark. They're trapped there for the foreseeable future. The police aren't going to let them leave anytime soon, and the politicians certainly don't want them to leave. The only people who seem to be on their side are their hostages. Christine, Elizabeth, and Birgitta are getting more and more angry with the police. More than once, they've been put in the line of fire from snipers and sneaking officers. And from their perspective, these police have been reckless. Christine is absolutely certain that if the police would just listen to her and let her leave in the getaway car with Yana and Clark, they would let her go. But instead... She feels that they're treating her like a stupid little girl. And those feelings become really clear when the police demand that she and the other hostages be brought out of the vault. Commissioner Torrender wants to see that they're still okay, but what they end up seeing is this line of scowling, tired, pissed-off hostages with Clark's arms draped over them casually. It's sort of like they've all just banded together against the police, and the hostages... They have sympathy for their captors. And Sven, let's get back to our new captive, Sven. He actually agrees to allow Yana to shoot him in the leg. Yana is trying to intimidate the police, and he's certainly not going to shoot any of the women. And strangely, Sven thinks that it's nice of Yana to offer to only shoot him in the leg. And ultimately, they don't even do that. They don't go along with that plan. Sven literally dodged a bullet. Later that night, Birgitta and Yana share a cigarette, and the hostages all call their families, and Christine joins Yana and Clark's efforts to sway the prime minister. Christine calls him on the vault phone and tries to sweet-talk him. Dearest Olaf, sweetheart, it may sound stupid, but I want to go with the two. The prime minister is perplexed by this. He's like, why? And Christine tells him, because I trust him. I know they would let us go as long as the police don't chase us. Is he hearing this right? The hostages prefer to stay with the robbers? As an outside observer, a label might come to mind here, one that we give to victims that begin to psychologically bond with their captors. But you wouldn't be able to use it because the term hadn't been invented yet. This very robbery at the Normal Story Bank and the fallout was confounding to the police, psychiatrists, and the public at large. No one knew what to make of it. In an attempt to reckon with this perplexing six-day saga, a new psychological phenomenon was born. Stockholm Syndrome. It's Saturday morning around 10 a.m., day three of the robbery. Up until this point, Yana has had the upper hand— Police have been waiting for him to make his next move, but they haven't heard from him since Friday night. They shout Yana and Clark's name all throughout the bank. They even fire off a few rounds of gunfire to startle the robbers awake. No response. For a moment, they think that Yana and Clark somehow snuck away in the night. But then they realize that their robbers must be in a deep sleep. So boldly, an officer approaches the vault door which Yana had been careful to keep cracked open. With a curtain rod in hand, the officer pushes the vault door shut and then rushes to turn the locking mechanism. And the door clicks into place, and judging by the shouts and curses coming from the inside, Yana, Clark, and all the hostages realize they are now locked in the vault, and the police suddenly have the upper hand. Commissioner Torrender and his forces move in. They stack sandbags between the columns that surround the entrance to the vault. They refuse to provide any more supplies to Yana or the hostages. They cut the phone lines and they place microphones in the vault's ventilation system. They've decided that they're going to wait for the robber to give up. Now that they're cut off from the bathrooms, they have to go in buckets that they keep on the far end of the vault, which is about 19 by 40 feet in there. The vault, not the buckets. Anyway, it's enough room that they have a little bit of privacy, but not enough that they can escape the smell and the emotional vibe of crapping in the same room as everyone else. And the police are holding any and all supplies from this group, and that includes 
food. So they are all starving. Then Clark pulls out three pears out of his pocket and he cuts them all in half, which is one piece for each of them. It's just another reminder to the hostages of whose side they're on. At this point, they really don't have much of a choice. On the one hand, they're totally isolated, boxed away from the outside world. But on the other, they're never alone now. The six of them have now been stuck together for three days running. And I'd imagine they're getting pretty tired of it. Who do they have to blame for that? In their minds, the police. The fluorescent lights in the vault also never go off. So they have no choice but to sleep in that blue, gross fluorescent lighting. They try to play games to keep themselves somewhat sane. But if this wasn't bad enough, things are about to get much worse for them. On Sunday, the fourth day of the hostage situation, they begin to hear a horrible screeching sound. It sounds like a giant drill pounding the concrete above them. It is unbearably loud. Yana suddenly realizes what that sound is. The police are going to try to gas them out, which is truly Yana's worst fear. They're drilling these huge holes in the ceiling to drop in tear gas canisters. He warns Clark and the hostages that this is what is going on. And they're all furious. Christine, Elizabeth, Birgitta, and Sven are being treated like accomplices. They're going to suffer from the gas as much as Yana will. If the police had listened to them and let Christine go in the getaway car, all of this would be over by now. And Yana is absolutely terrified of tear gas. He believes that if you inhale too much of it, you'll have irreparable brain damage. And he tells Clark and the hostages that he would rather shoot them dead than to let that happen to them. And while that really does sound like a threat, they actually take it as a kindness. It's a very strange one, and they hope it never comes to pass, but it is still received as a kindness and looking out for them. Now what the hostages worry about most is a shootout. If police drop the gas and bust into the vault, they could very easily be caught in the crossfire. But Yana has a plan that's going to stop this. He sets an explosive charge in one of the vents in the vault ceiling. He tells everyone to get to the other end of the vault and he detonates it. Boom! The screeching drill stops. And everyone is relieved. They are grateful to Yana for protecting them. But just a moment later, the drills start back up. And now the water from the drills are seeping in from above. So the floor of the vault is slowly filling with water and everything is getting wet. And then all those fluorescent lights go out and the vault is drenched in darkness. The police drill all through the night into Sunday morning. With every new hole comes a new opening to drop in gas. And they want every part of that 19 by 40 vault to be filled immediately. While they're drilling, the inhabitants of this vault are now trying to sleep in a few inches of water with the sounds of drills screeching in their ears all night. But now, the drilling has stopped. And Yana looks up through the holes in the ceiling with his machine gun in hand. He sees that the police are putting plate glass over the holes. But Yana is able to get off a few shots and injure one of these police officers. Christine feels like Yana is doing it for her. She feels like they're in this together now. Once all the plate glass is in place covering the holes, Yana knows the gas is imminent. He needs a new plan. And he thinks of something ingenious, but a bit risky. Yana pulls the yellow rope out of his suitcase and he fashions four nooses one for each hostage. He ties the nooses to the bar on the ceiling and he has the hostages stand with the ropes around their necks. He shouts through the police microphones that if they drop in gas, the hostages will pass out and then be strangled under their own weight. If the police drop the gas, the hostages' blood will be on their hands. And the police could never have planned for something this crazy. I mean, it's nuts. You have to admit, it's also pretty ingenious. As long as those hostages are wearing the nooses, they can't drop in the gas. It's 
just too risky. So instead of pushing forward, they decide to take a pause. And instead of gas, they drop in food and drink through the holes in the ceiling, and they leave to regroup for the next nine hours. At 9 p.m. on Tuesday, August 28th, the sixth day, Yana, Clark, and the hostages are caught completely unaware. Canisters suddenly drop down from the ceiling and the room fills with tear gas. Yana quickly commands the hostages to put on the nooses, but it's too late. They're coughing and vomiting and crying on the ground. They're in pain. It feels like the gas is going to suffocate them. And Yana panics. He shoots off one shot before realizing that the gas is going to make him lose his mind. His greatest fear. He drops his gun and shouts, I surrender! I surrender! The police open the vault door and three troopers in gas masks rush inside. They try to free the hostages first, but the hostages refuse to go out ahead of Yana and Clark. They believe that if Yana and Clark were let out last, the police might open fire on them. They end up coming out together. Immediately, all of them are taken to waiting ambulances and given oxygen to clean their systems of the tear gas. Christine is laid out on a stretcher as she is brought from the vault to an ambulance. She's incredibly calm. She's even wearing Clark's jacket that he gave her for warmth. And as she's carried away, she says to Clark, We'll see each other again. The normal story robbery is over. All four hostages are relocated to a psychiatric department at a hospital to have their mental traumas addressed. All of them receive letters and gifts of support from their friends and family. The bank sends red roses to each of the brave employees. They also eventually awarded Birgitta, Sven, Elizabeth, and Christine extended sick leave, three months of vacation, and 10,000 crowns. The day they arrive at the treatment center, police investigators come to officially question them. The psychiatrist's first question to Christine is whether or not she was in love with Clark. They played tape recordings of Christine screaming in the vault. The doctors told her that it was nearly impossible that she hadn't been assaulted. Christine maintains that that was never the case. She had had a nightmare, which is understandable given the circumstances that she found herself in, and Clark had in fact comforted her, held her hand. But the police, they don't believe her. She couldn't help but feel like they were blaming her for what happened. Elizabeth also accused the doctors of trying to rewrite the narrative. She told them the police were the ones that she'd been afraid of, not the criminals. Sven said that everyone in the vault had become good friends. Yana and Clark were nice guys. They certainly never raped anyone, despite what all the papers are actively reporting. The police had been the scary ones. But the police are still convinced that foul play had transpired in the vault. Because when they were inspecting the scene, they did find semen in the carpet. But that, too, had an explanation. After nearly two days of a terrifying police standoff, Birgitta was getting ready to fall asleep. When Yana approached her, he asked if he could hold her. And he had said it had been 21 months since he's touched a woman. So Birgitta agrees, and she humors him touching her hips and breasts over her clothes. Maybe if they get closer, she could convince him to end this whole drama. When he asks if they can have sex, she says no, of course not. Yana holds out hope that she'll change her mind for a while, but then when she doesn't, he rolls over and masturbates by himself, albeit next to her. And yet, in the aftermath of the six-day would-be robbery, reporters repeatedly speculate that the women hostages have surely been sexually abused. The women have consistently denied this accusation and have never changed their story. The New York Times repeatedly claims reliable police sources have said there was sexual abuse. Yet neither the consulting police psychiatrist, police superintendent, nor the charges against the two men can confirm that accusation. While the hostages are being questioned, Clark and Yana are back in prison. Yana's plan has totally failed. But Clark is still feeling okay as he extracts a wad of kroner he had stashed up his butt before the police raided the vault. But his day in court will come. 
Clark and Jana are charged for their crimes in Swedish court. Jana's accused of attempted murder, kidnapping, robbery with violence, and threats to life. Clark Olufsen is accused of kidnapping and threats to life. Jana is, of course, convicted of kidnapping, extortion, attempted extortion, aggravated assault, and robbery, as well as possession of an illegal weapon. He's sentenced to 10 years at the maximum security prison at Kumla. This effectively added seven years to the sentence he had been serving when he escaped. There was no conviction for attempted murder, which was the only charge he denied. Clark, on the other hand, made quite a show at his trial. He claims that he was doing his time like any good prisoner when the police forced him to be an accomplice to Yana's crimes. And you know what? He's got a point. He didn't ask to be there. He was just making do with his situation, trying to be a good party guest. So while he's initially found guilty, an appeals court overturns his conviction. But he still has to go back to prison to finish his previous sentence. He and Christine would eventually meet again, just as she promised. While Clark was on his 24-hour furlough from prison, which is like a break Swedish prisoners can have to visit their family, which again is something that they do in Sweden, I guess, Clark and Christine meet for lunch. They have some whiskey, they laugh, and when it's time for Clark to catch his train back to jail, they end up getting a hotel room. And... They have some passionate sex. And you know, I can't blame her. Clark is again, Bill Skarsgård level attractive. And I gotta say, their relationship, weird as it is, did a lot to seed the whole idea of Stockholm Syndrome. The Swedish psychologist who coined the term after the Normum story robbery is this guy Nils Bergerot. He comes up with the idea in part because of the sexual attraction that some of the hostages felt toward Clark. He describes Stockholm Syndrome as this paradox of common interests between hostages and their hostage taker that could also have a strong sexual component that could last a lifetime. Which seems like an obvious reference to Clark and Christine's relationship. But to point out the obvious, Clark, who clearly had the strongest bond with all of the hostages, was never actually a hostage taker. He was kind of a victim in his own way. He didn't want to be there, but he made the best of his situation, and ultimately, he was the man who calmed troubled waters on that terrifying morning in 1973. I'm so excited that we're covering this case of sort of the, quote, beginning of Stockholm Syndrome, um, because it's, you know, a phrase that I've heard and I've probably, you know, spoke about in a way that I didn't understand its beginnings. And I think what's also really compelling about this is that it was developed on a case that is incredibly complex and complicated, right? Like, they're sort of combining Yana and Clark as both captors, and I think that's just blatantly wrong. Yes. I don't want to conspiracy theory this, and we've taken a hit for uh, being— called, we've been called too hard on police in the past, but here I go again. I don't learn a lesson. I do think that something interesting to look at is it's the police that bring in the psychiatrist that coins the term. And something the police are up against is that all of the hostages are saying, we were afraid of you. We didn't like the job that you were doing. We thought you were making decisions that were reckless and putting us in danger. And at the end of the day, the story that we land on is not the police could have handled this better. They tear gassed and starved and, you know, put these people in a situation where they were pooping in buckets and sitting in water and essentially tortured. Rather than that be the story we end up with, the story we end on is, isn't it interesting that these people all fell in love with their captors because of this syndrome they developed, Stockholm Syndrome? That's the story we end up with. I think typically we describe Stockholm Syndrome to female victims or female survivors of kidnapping and, you know, what means they'll do to get out of a situation or if they develop feelings or empathy towards their captors. Um, And I think it's sort of an umbrella term that helps people who weren't in that situation maybe understand some of the psychology um, 
of people who have been held captive that maybe we can't quite understand or comprehend their feelings towards their captor. I did think it was really interesting that Birgitta was defending Yana's actions when things got sexual between them. Um, I I feel like she felt condescended to by the police who are saying, you're a victim, and she has the right, right. to say, I'm an adult and I am not. Um, but I do also have the willies when I read about that happening because I say to myself, okay, I won't call it abusive because you're not, but you've got to admit the power dynamic is very, very skewed while this sexual activity is happening. One of you has a gun. Uh, one of you is a hostage. So the idea that um, you were both consenting parties is a really hard one to wrap my mind around, admittedly. And I also think it's important to note that he also had, he also talked about in that moment, I believe, he had said, you know, I would never rape you because rapists in prison are treated really poorly. So there's like a lot of, again, self-interest in him listening to her, which I also think is, again, like the power dynamic is all skewed Mm -hmm. in this situation. So I agree with you. It does give me the willies. It does not pass my blink test. Um, But I do want to respect the survivor who was in that situation who said, this has not been assault and please stop categorizing it as such. And what's amazing is that that syndrome has lasted, and the story of the normal story robbery hasn't. It doesn't have the same worldwide knowledge, which I think is really interesting. And I'm glad that's why I'm glad we're covering this case. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in the making of this episode. Among the most useful were an article in The New Yorker titled The Bank Drama and a book about the robbery titled Six Days in August, The Story of Stockholm Syndrome by David King. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner, and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer, and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.